When she was the U.S. ambassador to Switzerland, Susie Levine noticed some things about how Swiss society operates that we Americans might want to emulate. They invest very long-term in infrastructure, and we could learn a lot about how they don't just fix, but they maintain. To explore the surprises of the universe, like red dwarfs, gas clouds, and black holes, start by looking through a telescope at the night sky. For Philip Plate, seeing Saturn for the first time is all it took. And a lot of astronomers, myself included, say that it was seeing Saturn as a kid that made them want to be an astronomer. To get to love winter like they do in Alaska, notice the sunlight as it glitters on the frost that greets you in the morning. It's like the world around you has grown these delicate white feathers, or sometimes it built up in these little sort of sparkling, very delicate spikes. Come along for the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. One of the best souvenirs of traveling is the perspective it can give you on the place you call home. Coming up, we'll hear why you don't have to dread winter, as our listeners in Anchorage can verify. Just start to enjoy it like they do in Alaska. And an astronomer from Virginia helps us imagine the otherworldly views you'd find on other planets in our solar system. Let's start the hour seeing what we can learn from the top nation, once again, in U.S. News & World Report's annual ranking of best countries in the world, Switzerland. I believe we can learn more about our own homes, our own nation, and our own lives when we travel and look back at our world from a distance. Susie Levine served as the United States Ambassador to Switzerland in Liechtenstein, and she did just that from the Swiss Alps. Susie joins us in our studio now to share a few observations on what we could learn from the Swiss and what they could learn from us. Susie Levine, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So first off, tell us just very briefly, how did you end up serving in Switzerland as our ambassador, and how was your tenure? I got a chance to know President, then-Senator Obama, uh, during his campaign, and he and his team saw my work in innovation, in startups, in youth outreach, and in executive leadership. And when he had the position available for Ambassador to Switzerland Liechtenstein, he and his team asked me to take that, and I was humbled and honored to do so. Very nice. Now, I love this notion, as I mentioned in the introduction, that when we leave our country and look at it from a distance, we can recognize um, ways that we might be able to get our uh, country better designed or, or learn from other countries. Tell me about uh, a couple of dimensions of Switzerland that you'd like to bring home. What can we learn from Switzerland? As an ambassador, I was very blessed to see and come across something in my time there that I could bring back to the United States. And I did. I didn't just see it. I brought it back to the United States. And that's the Swiss model of apprenticeship. In Switzerland, 70 to 80 percent of kids don't do high school. They only have nine years of mandatory education. And in the 10th grade, 70 to 80 percent of kids go into apprenticeship. And that apprenticeship is much broader than we in the United States have come to know it is apprenticeship in software development, in retail, in hospitality, in advanced manufacturing. Would we call it the trades? It's not just the trades. Here More. in the United States, yeah. we have atrophied our apprenticeship. Yeah. Ham Alexander Hamilton was an apprentice. Yeah. Benjamin Franklin was an apprentice. But over the years, especially since the 1940s, in the United States, apprenticeship really has dwindled to just being focused on the trades, and those are very important apprenticeships. Mm -hmm. However, in Switzerland, it is expansive. It is software development. It is Google has apprentices in Switzerland. Swisscom, their telecommunications lead, has apprentices in Switzerland. You have multimedia apprenticeships. And why is that better than what we have? 
What it does is at age 15, 16 years old, their education system is highly concentrated. And so you've already learned a ton up to the ninth grade. Starting in the 10th grade, you... um, It's a fork in the road. Well, here's... You You, you have to make a decision, a long-term decision. And no, actually, Mm -hmm. because they have built their system to be fully permeable. You can be an apprentice and go on to higher education. Mm. You can go through high school and become an apprentice. You actually can apprentice up to age 50, 55, depending on the different canton. But it allows them to have a culture of career instead of a culture of university. In the United States, only 30 percent of people actually get a four-year university degree. Are the other 70 percent dullards? No. Those other 70 percent, it wasn't the path for them. And in some cases, it might be the path for them, but they can't afford it. In Switzerland, everybody has a path to the Swiss dream. And it makes it incredibly equity delivering in the country. Think about those people that you know who are more hands-on, mm-hmm. who were a little bored in school, perhaps mm-hmm. a little mischievous in school, mm-hmm. where it just wasn't the mode for learning. And think how well they would have succeeded had they been able to have a practical versus theoretical education is how they reference So it. what are the stumbling blocks to that uh, vision here in the United States? Is it a psychological sort of pride and people want to kind of do what is supposed to be a more successful career path? The keys to success in Switzerland are illustrative of the challenges in the United States. In Switzerland, the businesses are producers and not just consumers of talent. They invest 60 percent of the funding into this system, 30 percent from the states or cantons and 10 percent from the federal government. An individual, when they're doing this apprenticeship, they are three or four days a week in their apprenticeship, one or two days a week in school, and the school relates to the apprenticeship. If you're a cheese-making apprentice, you are also learning microbiology. Everybody's learning citizenship. And what you have with it is uh, you can go from your cheese-making apprenticeship on to become a business leader. In fact, several of their members of their federal council over time have started their careers as apprentices. So it is extraordinary. And you meet with CEOs and many of them have started their careers as apprentices. So in the United States, I'd say it's stigma, Mm -hmm. it's business adoption, and it's the robustness of the system to be able to foster these paths. Yep. Susie Levine's our guest on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us what she observed as the U.S. ambassador to Switzerland for three years during the Obama administration. Susie continues to advocate for women in entrepreneurial and tech roles, and she has a TED Talk on what we can learn from the Swiss. You'll find web links with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Susie, what's another example of if we traveled in Switzerland and we pause and we get to know the Swiss and we look back at our homeland... What might we take home as a better appreciation to make our country better? One is multilingualism, uh, which we know that from a neuroscience standpoint, it helps you also be more cognitively flexible. Another is punctuality. Swiss timing. It's real. Just right here. You gave me a a call at the exact minute you were supposed to be at our front door, and you said, Swiss time, I'm here. There you go. I used to be late all the time, but not once I became ambassador. Infrastructure. They invest very long term in infrastructure. And we could learn a lot about how they don't just fix, but they maintain. And then one funny thing that I would always hear from students coming back from their exchange years is bread baking. The Swiss have extraordinary baked goods. And apparently we in the United States could learn a thing or two from them. You know, when I go to Switzerland, I'm always fascinated by their democracy. They've got a quirky government with a revolving presidency at at any one time. 
some engaged Swiss people may not even know who's serving as their president. How does that work? Well, to be clear, it's actually that they have a federal council that is very, very stable uh-huh. and that they rotate who gets to serve as the head of state. It's sort of on a titular basis in their federal government. They have the same branches of an executive branch, a legislative branch, and a judicial branch that we have. Because of the direct democracy, I would argue they have a citizen branch. Uh-huh. And what that allows them, that parliamentary model that is based on the United States model, they basically did V2 version two Mm -hmm. of our Constitution, it allows them to be able to really have a longer-term view. They're not worried about somebody getting unseated in two years. They also, when you vote for your parliamentary members on a cantonal basis, they basically, you know, I know in the United States there are a lot of conversations around ranked choice voting, around having more collective elections. They've got a lot of those types of structures already in place that makes the government more stable and ensures that there is perhaps less rotation, but I would argue more deliberation to move things forward in a more solid way. Do you think much about the issue of money in politics and the importance of having an educated electorate when you think about Switzerland's success and how they're doing their democracy compared to the United States? Everybody there studies citizenship, so that gives them an advantage. They vote four times a year, and because of their direct democracy, they take a direct hand in what's constitutionally set there or not. So they are much more engaged in their government and much more aware of the opportunities as a result of that engagement. And I think that that really helps them substantially remain among the top countries with trust in government and among the top in quality of life. And they are always among the top in terms of happiness as well. And that's one of my themes when I talk about the United States compared to Europe. You know, they they choose to work less. They choose to have less. They they probably work 80 percent of the hours we do. They probably make 80 percent of the money we do. But they have more time with their families and they have more time to recreate. Well, and in Switzerland, they actually work their tails off and they value work very, very highly. Mm -hmm. But they value life much more and they work to live. They don't live to work. And I read uh, that you also looked at the other way and what the Swiss might learn from us. And one of those things that we do that they could learn from would be a little more open, a little more gregarious. There's openness. There's gregariousness. There's also innovation and a freedom to fail and learn from failure, something very unique that we have in the United States that uh, really sets us apart in so many ways. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with former American ambassador to Switzerland and Liechtenstein, Susie Levine. Susie, if you had the opportunity to help counsel American politicians on our national budget, if it could be redesigned to fit Swiss priorities, what would you recommend? What major changes would you like to see? Well, as somebody who worked in the federal government and did actually design budgets and also worked at the state level where I had to oversee a budget, and when in my federal job I had an $11 billion budget in the Department of Labor, I wish that we could focus more longer term Mm -hmm. and amortize our costs and our expenditures over a longer period of time and not be as subject to the vagaries of the political winds. And as a result, do more like what Switzerland does, where they invest very heavily longer term in infrastructure, in education, and really helping the world be better. They They are investing very heavily, for example, in their Swiss development efforts, which is like our USAID, in countering violent extremism, which is how do you look upstream? How do you address challenges longer term so you don't have the problems to begin with? That kind of assumes um, 
an, an electoral path that does not come with such radical swings from left to right, I would think. They have a multi-party system as well and a parliamentary system that allows them to do that. Mm-hmm. And it is that parliament that then selects those members of their federal council. Also, what's fascinating about the federal council is they go for a unanimous support of something as there is a decision made. So they may disagree going into it, mm-hmm. but the unwritten rule is that they then, once a decision is made, all stand behind it, no matter where they are politically in their positions. Wow. We can learn a lot from our travels. We can certainly be inspired by how Switzerland is organizing its society. And Susie Levine, thank you for your service uh, representing our country to Switzerland for so many years and all the work you've done before and since. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. You have a nice time in The political neutrality of Switzerland can allow them to have conversations with countries that the U.S. just can't have. Susie Levine explains how they've invested in demining Syria in a brief extra to today's interview. You can hear it with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. In just a bit, we'll hear how you can get to love winter when you have fun in the snow like they do in Anchorage. But first, we imagine the view from another planet on Travel with Rick Steves. When's the last time you looked up at the night sky and tried to imagine what it would be like to view the universe from another planet? How small would the Earth look from Mars or from Pluto? Or what could you see when you peer through the rings of Saturn to count its dozens of moons? These are the kinds of questions that Philip Plate has wondered about since he was a kid. It inspired him to become the astronomer, science author and speaker, and would-be space tourist that he is today. Philip draws upon the latest scientific research to take us vicariously into the outer regions of our solar system and beyond. His book is Under Alien Skies, a sightseer's guide to the universe. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves from his home in central Virginia to give us a realistic idea of what distant space travel could show us. Phil, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Boy, you know, I work with tour guides all the time, and you are like a tour guide to space. And your book, Under Alien Skies, A Sightseer's Guide to the Universe, it's like a guidebook, isn't it? That was the idea, actually. Um, I have a lot of people come up to me when I'm giving public talks or when I take my telescope out and show people things like the moon and Saturn and Jupiter. And they ask, you know, what would these things look like if you were really there? Would they look different? And I thought, Sometimes yes, sometimes no, but it's it's complicated and there's a lot going on there. And I thought, you know, this would make a pretty good book. And I thought it would be fun to do it in a semi-fictionalized way where I take you to these places and show you what it would be like if you were yeah. actually there. But reading through it, it's like, yeah, I guess that is, uh, to the best of anybody's ability, what it would be like. And we don't even think about that. I've thought of Saturn all my life, but I've never thought of looking through those rings and you take us right there. So I want to go through the, the highlights of this itinerary that you've laid out in your book. But before we get into each particular stop, could you just give us a very quick astro tour guide survey of what this itinerary would be? How did you structure the book? Well, uh, some of it was easy. For example, we've been to the moon. People have been to the moon. And that's as far as we've gone. So at least there we have the accounts of the astronauts. So I knew I could use that and start off the book that way. And 
Also, the moon is fairly familiar. You can go out and see it. And so at least people have some sort of grasp on it. Uh, from there, Mars was the next obvious candidate because we've sent lots of probes there. Asteroids and comets we're learning a lot about. And it turns out they're pretty interesting. Saturn because Saturn, I mean, come on. Uh, and Pluto, because I thought, you know, Pluto, maybe it's not a planet, maybe it is, depending on what you think, but it's sitting at the edge of the solar system. And so you can look one way and see everything that we're familiar with to see our neighborhood. And then you turn the other way and you're looking out into interstellar space. And I thought, what a perfect way to divide the book at the halfway point. And then from there, we visit a red dwarf star, which is a tiny, faint star. There's one called TRAPPIST-1 that we know has seven planets at least. And it's an interesting system. And from there, a binary star, clusters of stars, inside a gas cloud where stars are forming. Uh, and then finally, at the end of the book, because, hey, it's the last place you'd ever really get a chance to visit, a black hole. And what would it be like to actually see them up close? You know, I get to talk to so many people who are so enthusiastic about what they do, and they're really wonks. You know, they're really into Botticelli, or they're really into opera, or they're really into ancient history or prehistoric caves. And I had a hunch you would be the great wonk for the solar system. And I can tell <laughs> by, by your enthusiasm. I'm going to put that on my resume. A solar system wonk. I like that. Solar system wonk. Let's start with the moon. Let's, that's sure. one place where conceivably we could actually, you know, a, a young person today may live to a day when you could be a tourist on the moon, I suppose. Do you think that's possible? Sure. Uh, we are going back to the moon right now. NASA has a program to go back to the moon with international partners. And if that works, it's possible that space tourism will become a thing. Now, you mentioned in the book that the temperature ranges from minus 200 to plus 250 or something like that. That's a 400-degree range. I don't even know how what that's like, that cold and that hot. But there is a little window when it's actually, you know, in the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there's no atmosphere, uh, which is a problem there. Temperature, I go into that a little bit because temperature is a funny topic. And, yeah, the rocks on the surface of the moon can get very hot in full sunlight. And then at night, they cool off quite a bit. But it doesn't really work that way for us. You know, if you're out there exposed to the sunlight, it wouldn't be any different than being on Earth because the sun is the same distance from the moon as it is here. So, sure, the rocks have this huge temperature swing, but without an atmosphere there, you'd be in a spacesuit or you'd be on a base or something like that. You wouldn't experience the temperature swings quite that substantially. Uh, but what would you see from the moon looking at the Earth? Would it just be like being on the Earth looking at the moon? A little, uh, in that you have this big circular thing in your sky, but in fact, the Earth is four times wider than the moon. So if you were to stand on the moon looking at the Earth, the Earth will look four times bigger than the moon does from Earth. So you'd be able to see colors, the continents, clouds, oh. be a little fuzzy. With binoculars, it would be spectacular, and um, you could watch the weather change. And the Earth would go through phases as well, just like the moon does from Earth. So you would see sometimes a crescent Earth, a half Earth, a full Earth, if you just wait long enough and watch it. Would you see a, an Earth rise like we can see a moon rise? That was a fun part of the book to write, let me tell you, because we're always told that the moon spins at exactly the same rate it goes around the Earth. And therefore, it always shows us the same face. And therefore... If you were standing on the moon, the Earth would always be in one part of the sky. Huh. But it turns out it's not that simple. The moon's orbit's elliptical, and it's tilted, and we see a little bit more than half of the moon. And from the moon, 
the Earth would in fact move around the sky. And so if you were at just the right part, like on the edge of the moon from where we see it from Earth, yeah, you could actually watch the Earth rise and set, but it would take several days for it to do it wow. because the moon takes wow. a month to go around the Earth. And that's what's actually governing what we see of the Earth <laughs> from the moon. Astronomer Philip Plate is taking us on a rip-roaring tour of the cosmos right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Phil's latest book, Under Alien Skies, is like a tour guide of our universe, where something new is always waiting to be discovered. Phil also writes on celestial and terrestrial topics for Scientific American and hosts a TED Talk on how to defend Earth from asteroids. He's also had a number of postings at SciFiWire.com. We provide links to Philip Plate's work with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Phil, the moon, been there, done that. Now take me to Mars. Mars is a cool place to go because it's got some Earth-like features. There's land, there's an atmosphere. It's, it's farther away from the sun, so it's colder and the sun would be smaller in the sky. But it gets pretty different pretty quickly because the atmosphere there is extremely thin. It's the same... Uh, thickness as the Earth's atmosphere at about three times the height of Mount Everest. So you cannot breathe it. And even mm. if you could breathe it, it's carbon dioxide. Ah. So it's there. So it's like but, I got good uh, news and bad news. Yes. There is an and, atmosphere. And, and bad news and then more bad news. And then, <laughs> oh, by the way, you're going to die without a spacesuit on Mars. So that's the really bad news. But the atmosphere is enough to create weather. And there's dust on Mars that's <laughs> actually made of iron oxide, rust. And it gets suspended in the atmosphere by winds, and it makes the air look kind of butterscotch-colored. And, and there can be huge dust storms and uh, all kinds of things, clouds even, on Mars. And this is all stuff that we've been learning recently because we have sent probes there. And in your book, Under Alien Skies, you wrote about there's even like a Martian Grand Canyon. There's even, you know, natural wonders that we know about on the surface of Mars that you could conceivably have on your little bucket list when you were going to go visit Mars. Absolutely. Uh, Valles Marineris, discovered by the Mariner probes when they flew past Mars. You're talking about a canyon so large that if you put the Grand Canyon next to it, it would be lost. This is an immensely long feature. It's, it's roughly as in length as long as the United States. And there are volcanoes on Mars that are immense. Uh, Olympus Mons is the largest known volcano in the solar system. And it's roughly the size of, you know, a state like Nebraska. It's hundreds of miles across. And so these are wow. immense features that you could actually see. They'd be better seen from orbit uh, because then you get a grasp of them. But if you were to go there and stand there and look at them, some of them would be so big. You know, if you were on the caldera of Olympus Mons, you'd hardly even know it's a volcano. It's so big. But the valley would be incredible to see and, and walk around in. Phil, we're, we're leaving Mars now, and you call asteroids the vermin of the sky. I mean, there's like countless asteroids, and they're all in orbit just like planets, but they're, they're different. What, what would you share as a tour guide about asteroids? Well, they're called vermin of the sky because they used to leave streaks in astronomers' images when they were trying to take pictures of galaxies and they would shake their fists at these asteroids mm. getting in the way. Uh, but it turns out these are really interesting objects. Um, the biggest ones are hundreds of miles across, and so they're, they're almost like planets. And the smallest ones, I mean, there's no definition of what the smallest asteroid could be, you know, size of a basketball. And some of them are made of rock. Some of them are heavily, have a lot of carbon in them. Uh, some of them are metal. And so these things have a lot of diversity to them, and a lot of them aren't even solid. 
the smaller ones that we've visited, like Bennu and Ryugu, these, these small asteroids that are less than a mile across, they're rubble piles. They're like basically sacks of rocks held together by their own gravity. And if you were to try to stand on one, they are so fragile, you could literally fall through the surface. It would be like jumping into a box of, of packing peanuts or styrofoam. You would fall right in. So <laughs> actually visiting an asteroid is a little bit tough. And you said in your book, you said billions of them. But yeah, if it's down as little as a basketball, even a small one can be in orbit, right? Uh, it doesn't. There's not a size limit to what it takes to be in orbit around the sun. No, a, a speck of dust can orbit the sun. That's not the issue. It's, it's how massive the sun is, really, to be in orbit around it. Uh, but as far as asteroids go, there are a billion of them larger than 100 yards across. So picture a football field. Imagine a giant yeah. rock sitting there the same size. There are a billion of those in our solar system, at least. So, in, And they're more. the smaller they are, the more there are. Phil, all it would take is one of those billion giant rocks to crash into Earth, and it would have an impact. Do you worry much about asteroids crashing into Earth like we see on movies? I don't fret about it. I don't lie awake at night in a cold sweat thinking we're going to get hit by an asteroid. On the other hand, it's a real thing, and they do hit us. You could ask a dinosaur about that, except you can't because they're all dead because an <laughs> asteroid hit the Earth 66 million years ago. And you so are my like kind that, of tour guide. <laughs> and actually, there are you've probably been to see cenotes in Mexico, have you not? Yeah. Those were created, those a lot things. of those were created by cracks in the ground after the giant asteroid impact 66 million years ago. So there are places yeah. on Earth where you can go and visit the remnants of asteroid impacts. Well, now, you know, just recently in the news, uh, it was a big deal. We bombed an asteroid just to see if we could divert its course. That was quite an undertaking. Um, did we prove that we could protect ourselves from an asteroid that somehow scientists knew was heading for Earth and we could just uh, alter its trajectory enough to save humankind? Yes, actually. What you just said is, is basically correct. Um, the asteroid Dimorphos comes close to the Earth. It has a little moon called Didymos and a probe called DART, the Double Asteroid <laughs> Wait a Redirection you know, Test. You know the asteroid, not, you not only know the asteroid's name, you know its moon's name. Oh, you well, the moon is what we hit. Oh. and uh, <laughs> But I, you know what? I said that backwards. Didymos is the asteroid. Dimorphos <laughs> is the moon. Uh, and this Double Asteroid Redirection Test, the DART mission, slammed into that moon. And that's really hard. That thing was moving really fast. And it hit an asteroid that was only a couple of hundred yards across. Whoa. So that is That's way, impressive. way smaller than a bullseye. That is and pretty they, darn good. And that could save yeah. our hides. Yeah, it worked. The moon's cool. orbit shifted. We knew how much and measured it. And we know that if, we, if it comes, we may be able to, to do this to an asteroid if it's threatening the Earth. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Philip Plate, and he's written a book called Under Alien Skies, A Sightseer's Guide to the Universe. Phil writes for Scientific American. He's written three books, all of them space-related, of course. To learn more about his work, you can go to badastronomy.substack.com. So, Phil, I understand from your book that you just love Saturn. What is it about Saturn? What isn't it about Saturn? Uh, if you've seen <laughs> photos of it, right? It's gorgeous. It's this gas giant planet, almost 10 times wider than Earth. It's surrounded by these incredible rings, these immense rings that are so wide from end to end, they would stretch two thirds of the way from the Earth to the moon. 
It's got a retinue of moons around it, and each one is weirder than the next. Ah. And it's also, you see these beautiful images of it from telescopes, from space probes that have been there. But at the eyepiece, if you've ever seen it through a telescope, it's absolutely beautiful. You don't get the detail you do in these pictures, but you can see those rings. And it's huh. just spectacular. And a lot of astronomers, myself included, say that it was seeing Saturn as a kid that made them want to be an astronomer. Now, what was really interesting that I picked up from reading your chapter on Saturn is it is less dense than water. As you put it in a very clever way, if you had a bathtub big enough to put Saturn in, Saturn would float. Ah, but it would leave a ring. <laughs> would leave a very, <laughs> very old, silly astronomy joke. Uh, yeah, astronomy joke. We talk about the density of objects as how much stuff is packed into how big of a space. And so iron, for example, is very dense and water is less dense and air is less dense than that. So planets like Jupiter and Saturn, we call them gas giants. They're very low density. They have about the density of water. Earth is five and a half times denser than water. It would sink if you could put it in a bathtub. But Saturn, in fact, is lower density than water, and it would float if you could get a bathtub that big. Okay, now on our itinerary for the solar system, we've only got like a million years, so we have to be we have to pick <laughs> and choose. And your next stop is Pluto, way on the far end of the solar system. Pluto, it's not even certainly a planet, right? I mean, there's some debate as if it's a planet or not. Well, it's its own thing. It's it's doing whatever it's doing, no matter what we call it. And trying to define a planet, I think, is really tough. Uh, but the point, I, I don't worry about if it's a planet or not. The point is, it's an interesting object. It's rocky, it's icy, it's very cold. It's got five moons. This And this thing is small. It's much smaller than Earth's moon. And it's, it's amazing that we can see it at all when it's three billion miles away. And so a space probe called New Horizons flew past it and took a lot of images of it up close for just a few hours. And we learned more about Pluto, I think, in those few hours than we did in the almost 100 years since it was discovered. And it's a weird, weird place. Pluto. So fascinating. So just briefly, Phil, is the difference between an asteroid and a planet just an arbitrary size limit? I mean, asteroids are kind of like tiny planets, and Pluto is somewhere in the middle? We don't really have a strict definition of what an asteroid and a planet are. You could have an asteroid that gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and then it kind of becomes a planet. We kind of think yeah. of asteroids as being rubble left over from the formation of a solar system. Planets are uh. bigger. And Pluto, yeah, somewhere in between. Well, Pluto is our springboard for the great outdoors when it comes to space exploration, <laughs> I guess. And that's the rest of your book, but we don't have time for that. But I'm just so inspired to be able to be on your little tour bus as we dip into the solar system. Phil Plate, thank you for writing your book, Under Alien Skies. It is indeed a sightseer's guide to the universe. I guess I can say happy travels, even in your dimension. <laughs> thank you very much. Welcome to the New World Travels. You're longing for relaxation, excitement, adventure? You can subscribe to Philip Plate's frequent newsletter postings at badastronomy.substack.com. In the wintertime, there are parts of Arctic Alaska above the tree line where the terrain and temperatures might make you feel like you're on another planet. But go to Alaska's big city of Anchorage along the waters of Cook Inlet, and wintertime is a season to celebrate getting out of doors. 
Up next, a longtime Anchorage resident who writes guidebooks to Alaska tells us how visitors to Anchorage can join in the area's wintertime fun, especially if you bring a warm coat and a decent pair of waterproof hiking boots. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Grab your parka and some warm boots because we're exploring Alaska as a cold-weather destination. Much of Alaska really shines during the summer, but in some areas of Alaska, winter is actually considered high season, where you can try your hand at dog mushing, uh, marvel at massive ice sculptures, chase the northern lights, and experience the Alaskan wilderness dressed up in its winter finery. To welcome us to Anchorage in the winter, we're joined by Lisa Maloney. She's a travel writer and the author of The Moon Guide to Alaska. And she's lived in Anchorage for more than 30 years now. Lisa, thanks for being here. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me. Lisa, you live in Anchorage, and I would imagine that's probably the most convenient gateway for anybody flying from the lower 48 to see Alaska, isn't it? It is a huge convenient gateway. We have probably the most flights coming up from Seattle and other parts Mm -hmm. of the lower 48. You can even get a nonstop here sometimes from some communities. So let's say we fly into Anchorage and we have a, a winter break and we want to think of what Anchorage and that part of Alaska might offer. First of all, winter or summer, Talk about the uh, centrality of Anchorage and how it can be seen as a both a gateway and a springboard for that region. Sure. So the road system in Alaska does not cover the entire state, but it is very well connected here around Anchorage. So if you are looking for a driving holiday, Anchorage is the best place to start it. You can mm. go south or you can go north or you can kind of go north and east. So you have lots of options here. From a practical point of view, it's kind of like the only only driving place to go, I would imagine. Just about, yeah. You can yeah. get to a few other places from here, but this is yeah. the best place to start your driving trip. And right. Anchorage is also nice. Because we're so centrally located, you can take day trips from Anchorage and get out to the sea or deeper into land. You can see almost any type of terrain that you want to see from here. So we've got lots of options to offer. What about skiing? I don't hear much about skiing in Alaska. If if you're a ski enthusiast in Anchorage, what do you do? Is it cross-country, downhill? Is there a big resort? So there's not a huge resort right in Anchorage, but there is one in the small town of Girdwood, which is about 35, 45 minutes south of here by road. Hmm. Technically, it's actually still considered part of the municipality. And it's, again, a great day trip from Anchorage. There is a resort there with lots of downhill ski grooming. But if you like cross-country skiing, let me tell you about Kincaid Park here in Anchorage. It is truly world-class. And as a cross-country ski enthusiast, if I didn't live here, I would visit here just to cross-country ski there. You know, I know that Anchorage is well-known for its trails in the summer, and it just makes sense that it'd be also really good for cross-country skiing in the winter. Absolutely. And if you'd rather be off-groomed trail, then we have lots of space for backcountry skiing here as well, just right outside of town. I'm holding a book right now, which is the uh, Lisa Maloney guidebook to day hiking in south-central Alaska, and that is basically the Anchorage area. So you've written a whole book on those hikes. Very much so. But if I may just insert one quick note that we are surrounded by beautiful mountains, which are a spectacular destination in any season. But... In winter, there are things called avalanches. And so if you're going to recreate in steep, hilly terrain around Mm. here, it's a really Mm. good idea to have at least the basic idea of avalanche hazard so you can recognize if a situation is dangerous and decide if you want to take yourself somewhere a little safer. 
if you got a family and uh, you just want some fun in the snow, basically, I, I was reading in your book about something called fat biking. What is that? Oh, fat biking. So the fat part of the bike is the tire. Uh -huh. These are bikes with a specially built frame so that they can accommodate tires that are several inches wide. And those let you more or less float on top of the snow. So you're not going to be biking in deep powder, but if there's any kind of a packed terrain or packed down trail, you can bike right on top of it just like you would bike on a sidewalk. Ooh, and it is a fantastic like way. And is it yes. realistic for somebody to actually have an experience of um, dog sledding? Yes, absolutely. Now, if you come up right before the Iditarod, then you might find that a lot of the mushers' kennels are actually busy getting ready for that. Oh, that's how they make a little extra money when they're not racing, is they take tourists out on their dogs. Oh, yeah, lots and lots of places I do. I never because, thought about that, because it's expensive mm -hmm. to keep a team of dogs all year long for your race. Those dogs eat a lot of food. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the Iditarod. That's the big deal every March, right? It starts in mm -hmm. Anchorage. It finishes, what, 800 miles to the north in Nome, 1,000 miles away or something like that? They will have covered a little more than 1,000 miles, yes. There are two different routes that they might take, a southern route and a northern route, but wow. they, they all basically cover a good 1,000 miles of terrain. It's a big, big festive thing in Anchorage as they kick it off, and I understand they have a ceremonial start, which is the big party. And then that, a couple days later, we have the serious start, right? That's the start in Anchorage is the ceremonial start, which is always on a Saturday. It really is a big party. You have street vendors. You have people selling food. There are now over 700 dogs that have had the start the locals, we like to go out and set up a lawn chair and watch the dogs go by and, you know, the mushers throw candy out to the crowd or sometimes they'll throw dog booties to wow. the crowd. Dog booties. You know, my yeah. sister ran the Iditarod, Jan Steves, and she actually finished it. I think she was the, I think she was the, one of the oldest women to ever run the Air Iditarod successfully. And she was so into it. In fact, she, she spends much of the year up there now with that Iditarod culture. There's a whole culture of dog mushers, isn't there? Well, I believe a lot of mushers would tell you that it's a lifestyle. It's a beautiful community, and I don't understand it, but it has sure grabbed my <laughs> sister by the heart. It is all-consuming, but I mean that in the best way possible, yeah. just because you have to dedicate your life to the dogs just the way that they are dedicating their lives to you. Like dog booties, you just go, well, of course we have dog booties. You of know. course they do, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> or sometimes they'll fall off the dogs, too, while the dogs are running down the trail. Ah. And then the little kids, especially, that are watching by the sidelines when there's a little gap oh, yeah. run out. Oh, yeah, what maybe. a cool souvenir. Well, that's a big deal. So if you're there on the first Saturday in March, you see the ceremonial beginning, and that also kicks off a, a local festival. You write about it in your book, Furrandi. Oh, so Furrandi actually usually happens just before the Iditarod. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of very Alaskan things. My favorite thing to do when people are visiting or maybe they've just lived up here for a little while and they haven't quite copped onto it is to tell people to go to the outhouse races in Furrandi. Outhouse with, races? Outhouse races. It's just what it sounds like. They take an outhouse, you know, a, a little shed that you would poop in, yeah. and they put it on skis, and they attach a team of people, I believe it's somewhere between four and six people, to this, and then you have head-to-head -head races. So there will be two outhouses on the track at once. That's my kind of race. 
It's a hoot. And they decorate them to go with themes. And of course, there has to be somebody sitting in the outhouse because that's what it's for. <laughs> I so got to say, that sounds so Alaskan to me, just sort of like off the wall and hardcore nature and uh, humorous. It, it is hilarious. One of the winning teams recently was called the Runny Diapers. It was a bunch of dads, I think, that got together yeah. <laughs> and they wore giant diapers on the outsides of their costumes while they ran. But oh, gosh, they fun. were fast. Yeah. If you were going to be there for the, the cultural aspect, you've got this crazy Furandi time before the Iditarod. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with travel writer Lisa Maloney, and she writes the Moon Guidebook to Alaska. She also writes Day Hiking in South Central Alaska and 50 Hikes Around Anchorage. You can find out more about Lisa's work at her website, hikingalaska.net. So on that great day, what, the first Saturday in March, uh, Anchorage must just be in all its splendor. That must be the the most energy-filled day of the year for that city. It is. It is a real party. Everyone is excited. I've never seen a grumpy person at the ceremonial start of the Iditarod. And then if you have so much fun there that you want to keep it going for another day, the actual official start of the race usually happens in Willow, which is a couple hours north of Anchorage. Mm -hmm. So you can easily make a day trip up there. It's just like tailgating at a football game. You walk out onto a frozen lake, which is where the race starts, but don't worry, it's nice and frozen, so nobody's falling through. And you take your lawn chairs and you take your cooler, which keeps the beer warm enough to drink instead of cold enough to drink. And you take your blankets and you wrap up and you just hoot and holler as the mushers are released at timed intervals and they get started on the actual 1,000-mile race north. Oh, that's great. Now, if I was going to Anchorage in the summer, I'd certainly use it as a springboard to see Denali National Park. It's four hours uh, beyond Anchorage. But I understand in the winter, Denali is wide open for visitors as well. So it is absolutely still open, and the rangers love it when people come visit during the winter because not a lot of people realize that's such a great opportunity. Yeah, what could you do in the winter in Denali? Because you're right there in the shadow of the tallest mountain in North America, 20,000 feet high. We're all proud of Mount Rainier in, in Washington State where I live, and it's 5,000 feet shorter than Denali. Well, Mount Rainier is beautiful too, just for the record. Okay, I'll, I'll agree with that. Okay, yeah. but Denali must just be, whoa. It is gloriously beautiful, and actually on the drive north from Anchorage, that is one of the best opportunities to see Denali. There are a couple of viewpoints just off the highway, now, they might or might not be open depending on the road conditions, yeah. but you can keep an eye out for it from the road itself as you're driving north. Once you get to Denali National Park, skiing and snowshoeing are a couple of great ways to spend time there. I believe there are actually more tours available now than there have been in the past. When I have friends going to Alaska in the winter, usually they send me a photograph of them in a uh, hot springs. So that's going to be further north from Denali. It's actually up to Fairbanks and then another hour or so down the road. You get to okay, a place so called Chena Hot Springs. That's a long way to go from Anchorage. If you're in Anchorage, can you enjoy the northern lights? If you're there in the winter, that's the time, right? You can, but you're probably going to need a rental car or a local buddy with a vehicle because the key to seeing the northern lights here is getting out of town and away from light pollution because this many houses... We just generate a certain amount of ambient light. It doesn't mean you can't see the northern no. lights from in town, but it's harder. If you want to see them, you want to see them in their full glory, and that's a function of how dark it is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then from Anchorage, the northern lights can be straight overhead, but you can also look to the north. They're either going to be on the north horizon usually or the northeast or straight up overhead, depending oh, right. on how strong they are. 
you know, this is just so exciting to think that you're just a few hours from Anchorage and you can go there for a four-day weekend and there's lots to do. When you're thinking about Anchorage in the winter, what are the pros and cons of the different months? You know, the weather is not always predictable, so it can vary from year to year. But in general, the very early winter, there might not actually be that snow. It kind of varies in when it gets started. Yeah, so you might. Your, your book said it usually comes in late December, actually. Nowadays, that seems to be more common. So oh. if you're really lucky, if you're big into ice skating, you can get something called Nordic skates. They're extra long ice skating blades that clip uh-huh. into the bottom of ski boots. And if it's been cold enough, but we haven't had a lot of snow, you can actually go skating out on some of the marshes and the lakes if they've frozen over enough. What about safety, just for people walking around? I've, I've been in cities when there's been an ice storm, and it is just treacherous to go outside. How does Anchorage deal with that, with its visitors that are from the lower 48 and don't get it? That's a really good point. Slipping and falling is a fairly big hazard up here during the winter. And unfortunately, I don't think there's any kind of a program where we hand out ice grippers to visitors. I really wish we did. There is something called ice grippers, huh? Yeah, So, or some people might call them ice cleats, or sometimes Uh you might hear certain brand names thrown around just as sort of a general term. But they're all universally, there's some variation of metal pokey things attached to a stretchy harness. Mm. And so you sort of stretch the harness over the bottom of your shoe and then so the metal... So it's like metal pokey things on a stretchy harness. <laughs> of course. That... <laughs> now just you're talking my language. <laughs> go into exactly the store and ask for about. those. Right? You just slip those metal pokey things on and it's a, it's a stretchy harness, so one size fits all. And then you can walk around without breaking your, your shoulder or your arm. That's the idea, as long as there's a good fit between the pokey things and your shoes. So some of them are one-size-fits-all, but you'll also see some that come in small, medium, large, just because there's so much variation in shoe size. Now, if I got my pokey things on and I'm hungry, (laughs) and I want something that I'll never forget, is there like street food? Is there merchants out there selling things that are typically Alaskan? What would I put on my list, my my eating list? So a lot of places are known for their street food. In Alaska, I'd say the one very characteristic street food that we have up here is reindeer sausage. And if you are in downtown Anchorage, you will find vendors selling them up and down the street. They are delicious. And people are getting more and more creative about the types of toppings that you put on there. So sautéed onions are a big one. I have it on good authority that the secret is that you sauté them in a soft drink. In a soda. Saute them in a soft drink. Mm-hmm. Like, Apparently, uh, that's what makes them so delicious. But you'll also find people offering kimchi, for example, is one of my favorites uh-huh. to go on your reindeer dog. If you have an ethical issue where you don't want to eat Rudolph, then usually the same vendors will offer a few different alternatives. So there can be non reindeer. Okay. I want to address this right now because yes. if somebody has no ethical issue in eating beef <laughs> or pig, is hmm. there a difference about a reindeer compared to? A cow. I mean, I think you can have an ethical issue about eating meat, red meat, but there's nothing more precious about a reindeer than a cow. No, I wouldn't say so. And in fact, you might feel ethically better about eating reindeer dogs because they're not going to be in a factory farming type of situation. There you go. The reason I ask that, Lisa, is because for years I took my tour groups up to Scandinavia and I just thought it was great we're going to have reindeer tonight for dinner. And people go, oh, Rudolph, no, <laughs> come on. It's like a, just a cow. <laughs> well, but <laughs> you know dog. what? But if cows drove Santa's sleigh, then I'm sure they would have the same reaction there. There you go. So, there you go. We can think about that when we go to Anchorage in the winter because we're going to have long nights. 
Lisa Maloney is joining us from her home in Anchorage, where she tells us about the winter sparkle of Alaska's largest city right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Lisa is the author of the Moon Guidebook to Alaska, as well as Day Hiking South Central Alaska and 50 Hikes Around Anchorage for Mountaineers Books. Lisa recommends 10 wintertime hiking trails not far from the city at hikingalaska.net. And I just want to finish with just a little discussion about embracing the darkness, you know, because it does get, you can be looking at the the stars at 6 p.m., right? Absolutely. And that's a spectacular thing. How many places in the world can you go and say that you have done that? So it is a chance if you go to a vacation in the winter in Anchorage where you can just spend time with a cup of hot chocolate and under the stars long before your bedtime. Absolutely. And honestly, I kind of look forward to winter for that. Don't get me wrong, I love summer, and I do wish that there were a place where you could have a year-round Alaska summer. But Mm. I also love the swing of the seasons. Mm -hmm. It's like a chance to cozy up with your favorite fuzzy blanket, to Mm -hmm. really enjoy the contrast between the cold outside and the warmth and the comfort of being inside. And sometimes it also makes even a little outside jaunt feel like more of an adventure, too. And especially if you're not used to this kind of climate, then it's a really novel and exciting experience to be outside in a place where you can see your breath, you know, get just a little way out of town and you can see the stars. You might see wild animals in their finery too. Some of them change their coats from brown in the summer to white in the winter. Mm. There's just a lot going on here once you start looking for it. And it's funny you say wild animals in their finery. I also think of nature in its finery when it's just kind of draped with the jewelry of ice and snow. I mean, the whole world is a, it's like a frozen wonderland we have when we go to the theater. I can't think of a better way to describe it than frozen wonderland. And one of the most beautiful phenomena that I have seen here is called hoarfrost. It's when it gets very, very cold and then layers of really fine ice from the air start building up on any exposed surface and it can build up into these beautiful feathery concoctions. It's like the world around you has grown these delicate white feathers or sometimes it builds up in these little sort of sparkling, very delicate spikes. It's Hmm. beautiful and you can even see ice pillars in the sky even if you don't see the northern lights. Sometimes there are enough particles of sparkling ice in the sky that you end up seeing these pillars of luminescent light, whatever light is in the atmosphere or from the town, it just collects. Mm. And then it gets sort of channeled by these columns of ice in the sky. It's beautiful. Nature in all its finery, in its winter finery. Lisa Maloney, thank you so much for joining us, and thanks for writing The Moon Guidebook to Alaska. Best wishes. Thank you, Rick. Happy travels. Happy travels. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Casmore Hall, and Donna Bardsley. You can find links to our guests and listen to a podcast version of the show or search the archives. It's all at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Monday Night Travel. It's a weekly travel party and you're invited. Zoom in and have some fun learning about Europe's art, history, culture, and food over drinks and snacks. It's free, it's an adventure, and be careful, it can be addictive. Join me and my travel buddies over Zoom for Monday Night Travel. We're live every week, starting at 6 p.m. Pacific Time, 9 p.m. Eastern. Register at ricksteves.com and BYOB.